Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we'll be joined by John Storr, who edits and writes much of the content for the editorial board. And uh, we're going to talk to John about a whole bunch of stuff. Um, among that, among that stuff, we're going to briefly touch on Trump's town hall this week, which has drawn intense criticism for CNN, which uh, sponsored it, uh, and with good reason, I think. I didn't watch it because why would I do that? But in um, perusing some clips this morning, one thing that stood out for me was that Trump repeated the exact same defamatory attacks on E. Jean Carroll that led a jury to award her $5 million this week. Um, I should say that the award was for sexually assaulting her as well as defaming her, but he repeated the defamatory uh, statements. In any event, I am... um, I'm guessing that Miss Carroll feels vindicated from having won that jury award and would not want to put herself through all of that Michigas again. But if she chose to, she could sue him again. It's not like a, a jury award for uh, defamation covers, you know, repeating the same defamatory claims in the future. It's not like you, you pay it all as a bulk deal. She could, in theory, just... Keep suing him until he shut the hell up, in theory. Um, Our friend Matthew Chapman reported for Raw Story that that was just one of several comments Trump made that could come back to bite him in various legal cases. At one point, he said that he didn't, quote, really share classified documents with anyone at (laughs) Mar-a-Lago. So he kind of shared classified documents with people at Mar-a-Lago. Um, quote, former FBI agent Peter Strzok called the comment a, quote, tacit admission of unauthorized disclosure of classified information. (laughs) Uh, Chapman writes, and again, I quote, as for the January 6th probe, Trump agreed with moderator Caitlin Collins that the people who stormed the Capitol, quote, listened to him like no one else. So she said, well, I'll do bear responsibility. And in that conversation, she said, yeah, they listen to me like no one else. Um, former prosecutor Eli, Ellie Honig told Mediaite that was, quote, the most important clip of the night because the essential element of proving the crime is that Trump knew he had influence on the rioters. Um, Honig went on to say, quote, I've never heard him so clearly admit that everything Donald Trump says is out there. It's fair game. It can be used. He also, according to a, a number of legal experts, um, gave Fannie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, more fodder for um, prosecuting him for that infamous phone call with uh, uh, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffsberger, where he asked him to, f- quote, find more votes. So this has always been Trump's shtick. All right, he confesses to crimes on TV so that the press will think of it as just Trump's bluster or dismiss it as Trump being Trump and not focus too much on the crimes themselves. Um, that has served him extremely well so far, I think. Given the media's normalcy bias, their tendency to try to see everything as basically more or less normal. Uh, But that tactic may be reaching its limits as all of this shifts from the uh, so-called court of public opinion to various courts of law. Um, Anyway, we've got a lot to cover with John, so let's take a quick break and then get on with it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Was it going on behind my back? Second thought, don't tell me that I don't need to know all the facts I just need to know Is there a price for doing well? Should I feel bad cause I can't tell? I felt guilty there for a spell, but now I need to know. Am I wasting my time? Ooh. 
And we are back. I'm happy to once again be joined by John Store. John is the managing editor and budding media mogul behind the editorial board, which listeners can and should check out at editorialboard.com. John, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again. Um, usually I love to do a, like a smooth segue, but today I'm going to cover a bunch of things you've recently written and I'm just going to be like, okay, we're going to shift gears. Here, so just to prepare mm-hmm. you. Um, I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about this today, but I do want to just get your reaction to CNN giving Trump a town hall with a sympathetic audience, right? They, they got, um, MAGA supporters and quote independence, which you're always got to be, you know, a little dubious about. Um, and that audience laughed at Trump as he mocked E. Jean Carroll, the woman who a jury just found he had uh, sexually assaulted and defamed, and also mocked moderator Caitlin Collins as she desperately tried to fact check his bullshit. Your thoughts? <laughs> I think it's important for people to remember that the media, especially television media, is not uh, it, it's a product of choices that are made. Um, I think a lot of Americans consume television media as if it were it came straight from God Himself, um, and the and the, so therefore the, as if as if they're looking at something that that did not pass through some kind of human consciousness. And there, so here's why I'm saying that the, CNN is one of the country's most lucrative media properties, right? Uh, the most important thing to the owners of the country's most lucrative media properties is continuing to be one of the country's most lucrative media properties. That's their number one thing. Uh, as such, they tend to reflect and represent um, the opinions and views of other owners of other lucrative pieces of property. In other words, these very obscenely rich people tend to have a... a, a, a um, similar points of view about the world, especially with respect to people who work for them. And um, it seems to me that CNN is uh, part of a kind of owner class reaction to the Biden administration taking the side of workers um, and uh, is therefore just pretending that it's providing this, you know, democratic forum to Trump when in fact they know exactly who he is and what he's going to do and so on and so forth. I don't even think they're doing it for profit. I think they're doing it because that's, um, you know, what the, uh, what the common opinion is among uh, the very obscenely rich, as I call them. Well, uh, Chris liked who uh, is the CN is CNN's uh, editor. Uh, I don't, I don't know what his actual title is editorial chief, something like that. Um, he has said very explicitly that he's trying to move the network um, to make it more friendly towards Republicans. I think uh, CNN deserves all the blowback it's getting today for mm. platforming Trump, you know, just after um, just after the E. Jean Carroll trial, which was obviously bad timing for the network. But I, I think it's important not to overlook the fact that the entire political press decided to treat Trump spewing the same bullshit that he posts every single day as a major news event, right? They're all guilty of the mm-hmm. same thing CNN is getting roasted for, uh, even if to a uh, somewhat lesser degree. And I would, of course, point out that the reality is that Trump has said nothing new whatsoever since like late 2019 when he read the polls and started claiming the election was rigged. Uh, mm-hmm. um, it, it your point about them knowing exactly what they were going to get um, is clearly true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, I saw a lot of journalists live tweeting this like it was a major news event, as if CNN mm-hmm. wasn't giving him a wide enough audience for his blather. Um, <laughs> and I, I also want to just 
second your point about this idea that there's, and this is called the view of nowhere by a lot of media critics, that this mm. idea that they're just covering an event and they're not making editorial choices, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan Allen, the former Politico writer who's now at NBC, he had a post today titled, and we're recording this on Thursday, by the way, he had a post today titled, Pure Trump Reinjected into the Main Vein of American Politics at CNN <laughs> Town Hall. Reinjected. Mm-hmm. So that's a passive construct. But Trump mm-hmm. wasn't re-injected into anything by like the hidden hand of the media, right? It was it was mm-hmm. an editorial decision to hype and cover uh, this rehashing of old grievances like it was a um, presidential debate. And I don't mm-hmm. think that the CNN town hall itself is is a big deal. We all know we've heard this stuff a million times. We'll hear it all again. For me, it's more what it says about the legacy media's coverage of American neo-fascism and also um, what it portends for uh, what's going to be an exceptionally stupid year and a half leading up to the election. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 will be, it will be exceptionally stupid because the, the choice in 2024 will be uh, stupidly obvious. You know, the right choice, I mean. Yeah, um, it's it's going to be between two old men, unless they one of them dies or both of them die, <laughs> you, you know. And and the, the choice will be stupidly obvious, and so because it will be stupidly obvious, we need to fill up the space with something. Yeah, um, and and so there will be a lots of uh, manufactured news, really, um, that will uh, increase in in orders of magnitude toward the peak of stupidity. <laughs> Yeah, um, I would just point out that it is uh, May of 2023, and Trump may not win the nomination because there's going to yeah. be other developments that happen between now and then. Uh, people don't really tune into poli- in, into the you know the presidential election until sometime around Thanksgiving of this mm-hmm. year. Uh, they start to pay attention, and and that's a a good kind of touchstone for people reading polls. Ignore all the mm-hmm. polls; they mean nothing this far out. Um, okay, let's move on. We had some rare accountability this week with the civil verdict against Trump, uh, and then the indictment of George Santos, the serial fabulist representative from New York who literally made up his entire biography while, uh, ripping off various people along the way and somehow getting very rich, very quickly, uh, from mysterious, Uh, sources of income. Um, And he was indicted, of course, on 13 federal charges, including wire fraud and money laundering. You wrote about these two malignant narcissists um, and their legal, their disparate kind of legal positions. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, my thesis is really about um, uh, equality before the law and, and political power. And uh, George Santos, you know, no, he has like he has. It's hard to imagine somebody with less than who has less power than George Santos. I mean, he's he's not even a person. He's a figment of an imagination. People who aren't uh, one of one of McCarthy's five votes in Congress have less power than this guy. Yeah. So but he but he's too stupid to even leverage that. I mean, he's no, <laughs> he's no Joe Manchin. You know, Joe Manchin is respected and feared. What is yeah. George Santos? Nothing. You know, so. Uh, so because he is nothing or less than nothing, it was really easy for federal prosecutors to bring an indictment against him. You know, super easy. He hasn't been in office even a year and bang, you know, and he was he was indicted on things he did before he even got to office. Yeah. Um, and, you know, compare that to Trump, who has a huge amount of political power uh, and he's being treated with the, the softest, most velvety gloves possible. Yeah. Um, and that to me, that just tells you, like, the weaker you are, the less equal the law is. Uh, it, it, the law treats you. Um, the more powerful you are, the more equal <laughs> you, you are treated. Um, and I know that sounds like a, an oxymoron, but but equality really is about power. It's not about equality uh, when it comes to to the law. And, I'm, and, you know, the more money I have, the more leverage I have to break laws. You know, my theory is that really um, there is no such thing as a, as a, as a legitimate billionaire. 
right. um, because you, you don't become a billionaire unless the government looks the other way while you do stuff to become a billionaire. And, or at um, least your, your grandpa did. Yeah, and and but, <laughs> but if you're if you're just a working schmo uh, and you do something bad, the government will crack down and on you in a hurry. Um, and so the, the the George Santos Trump dichotomy really reflects to me the whole nature, the whole problem of even saying that no one is above the law because yeah. it's just not true. I I totally agree, um, and I, we should also acknowledge that Santos was an incredibly sloppy crook who left a massive paper trail, and I think <laughs> the um, the feds aren't going to have any problem whatsoever convicting. It's like a slam dunk, and that's not necessarily the case with most of the charges Trump is facing. Like if you look at false elector scheme, that's a little harder to prove, and of course, you know, the reality is that. Um, uh, Trump is the likely Republican nominee, has tens of millions of rabid supporters, and some of them have engaged in acts of violence on his behalf. And those things have to factor into prosecutors' um, caution in bringing charges. Of course, I think they should. Um, and let me just also note how cynical it is for Speaker Kevin McCarthy to not call for his resignation or for a vote of expulsion unless he's convicted. He's uh, an embarrassment to the GOP. Some of his fellow Republicans have uh, called for him to step down, which is pretty unusual, uh, yet McCarthy needs that vote. And at the pace that the criminal justice moves, um, Santos is almost certainly going to serve the rest of his term before uh, facing a trial or pleading out, which seems like a pretty likely uh, end, end game here because that, that dude faces 20 plus years if he's convicted. Yeah. Um, Okay, I want to shift gears again. Let's talk a little bit about the debt ceiling, quote, standoff. Um, mm -hmm. You wrote this week about the 14th Amendment option that the Biden administration is reportedly considering, which, by the way, is a shift because a few weeks ago they were saying, well, we're not considering this, and now all of a sudden they are. Um, John, what is that? What, what do we mean when we saw, say the 14th Amendment option? Oh, it just means that the full faith and credit of the United States will be not will not be questioned. Uh, it was a Civil War uh, uh, amendment, um, and uh, it was about repaying the the United States debts after the war. And uh, the the idea is that the Fourteenth Amendment prevents the Congress from, from using the Constitution as a ransom note. That's basically how I would put it. And. Um, and that's a yeah, that's a big shift from previous administrations. But this Congress is a big shift from previous Congresses too. Um, this is yeah. the, uh, I think the last serious debt quote unquote standoff was what twenty eleven or something. Twenty eleven. Um, but it hasn't been a, hasn't been an issue since then, and now all of a sudden it is again. So for this administration to start thinking about legal alter constitutional alternatives is a good thing. My, my my opinion really is that um, you come up with whatever reason you want, just but just keep paying the debts, just ignore the Congress, and um, ask for forgiveness later, <laughs> and that that forgiveness will come in the form of some kind of House investigation, in which you know somebody like Jim Jordan will want to know why Biden stopped a massive global panic, right, and, and then Biden will be you know just shrug his shoulders and say, well, what do you want me to do? Yeah. You know, yeah. So I, I think, I think people, there a lot, we have a lot of concern about what counts as constitutional. I think normal people don't really care about what's constitutional when their bank accounts and savings have vaporized, um, which it would be a, a lot. That would be uh, the case. Um, some, I don't remember the number, but some, double-digit trillions of dollars in personal wealth would disappear if the United States defaulted on its debt yeah. uh, around the world. And that's like, <laughs> you want to talk, we can, we can have a talk about that or we can talk about constitutionality. And I'm pretty sure normal people will talk about not constitutionality. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. And just so listeners know, the, the, the way this would be operationalized is that Biden would simply, I assume, give a speech and say, you know, this is... Um, defaulting on the debt it violates the constitution the debt limit is not a, in the constitution it is an act of congress and uh, i'm just going to instruct the treasury to continue making payments to avert 
a mm-hmm. um, global economic meltdown. Right. Uh, and, and so and by, really nothing, nothing, nothing would happen. You mean everything would be the same, right? Yeah. I mean, and 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 so the, if he did that, then all this, all this stuff about all this drama that the Republicans are trying to build would just land with a thud. It would nothing would happen. I mean, they would scream bloody murder, and nobody gives a shit. Be, be no, nobody base. will care. Exactly. Yeah. Biden says he'd worried. He he's worried that he'd be blocked by the courts, but that's not a certainty by any means. It's not clear that the House, which is run by Republicans, would have standing to sue. But in any event, that would have to play out in the courts. And in the meantime, you would avert a disaster. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the media coverage of this so-called crisis. That's a word I see bandied about as if it's a a natural disaster, as if it's a hurricane or something, and not evidence of um, Republican nihilism. I also see pundits saying that the debt ceiling has become, quote, politicized, as if that's true when a Republican is president, which it is not. When they hold the White House, the debt limit just gets raised as a matter of course. And that was also the case with Democrats in the White House until um, they went and elected a black guy with a funny name. Um, John, I wanted you to take a listen to this short clip and give me your reaction. This is Biden answering a reporter's question at a White House briefing. The list goes on. So but in terms of what he is proposing, is there any room for negotiation? What's he proposing? Did he tell you? Well, Did he, you he talked him? about... No, no, I'm not being facetious. Did he tell you what he's proposing? He, he was talking about the bill. Yeah, but what, what does it propose? Do you know? I'm not being a wise guy. You all are very, very informed people. Do you know what that bill cuts? He, there is a long list of things that it, it cuts. That no, no, it doesn't say. It says, does it say what it's going to cut? Or just say generically it's going to cut? You get the problem. He is better at this than people give him credit for it. What do you make of the fact that the press is acting as if McCarthy has made concrete and... Um, in, in many news reports, non-crazy proposals for cutting spending. <laughs> I, I, what I like is just, just Biden is just being so matter of fact in that clip. Um, he's, he's, asked, he's saying, okay, he wants cuts. Well, what does he want to cut? <laughs> and he knows the answer is that, they're, that they haven't offered anything. And he knows that a, 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 a normal person is going to be like, okay, they want cuts, but what do they want to cut? You know, the, uh, somebody who cares about at least pe- appearing reasonable will think that that's a reasonable question, right? And it will also the, the, a person who cares about appearing reasonable will also see the president saying things like, it, it, it would be okay with the president saying, well, if I don't know what they want me to cut, what do you want me to do? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 he has a, he has a real knack for all his whole career has really been just uh, mastering this normal person persona. Yeah, um, he's a regular Joe. Is a regular he's the regular Joe, and um, that clip, by the way, also shows like all this all this um, concern about his age. Just I don't know what I don't know what the concern is. Like, he is on the ball right there. Um, he's asking a serious question. He's saying, "Hey, I'm not trying to be a wise guy. This is a, honestly, you know, he's got every everything that all his he's 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 displaying his repertoire from a from a lifetime in Washington." Yeah, um, and that's you, you don't do that if you you know. I've seen, I've had elders in my family decline. <laughs> they don't look like the president. No. Uh, all right, let's put Biden's age in our pocket because I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. Sure. Um, I just want to give listeners context. You know, on the show, I always am mindful that not everybody's paying close attention to all this stuff. People have normal lives. Um, the context here is that the uh, the House under McCarthy managed to squeak through this debt ceiling bill. Um, it does not make a call for specific cuts to programs because they want to fuzzy that up. Um, it would require a 22% reduction in discretionary spending. And so behind all of this, the Democrats are like, oh, we'll have to cut veterans benefits. And they're just saying popular things that would have to be cut Mm -hmm. in order to squeeze out 22% across the board cuts in discretionary spending. Republicans are squawking. They held a press conference whining about, you know, this issue of veterans benefits. Um, That's the kind of context. 
people's views of the issues, of course, are largely shaped by media coverage. And I want to talk a little bit about that, as we always do on this show. And I want to get your thoughts on some polling on this issue. Uh, The Wall Street Journal had a poll showing that almost half of respondents oppose raising the debt limit, which is objectively bonkers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal asked about raising the debt limit without any additional context, right? So they just said, do you Mm -hmm. think we should raise the debt limit? Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. a CBS News poll found that, and I quote, 70% of Americans support raising the debt ceiling if it means the U.S. would default without doing so. And it does mean that. It obviously Mm -hmm. does mean that, right? So you get this disparate outcomes when you ask the question. Now, a Washington Post-ABC News poll offers some seemingly contradictory findings. When they asked whether Congress should, quote, allow government to pay debts only if Biden agrees to cut spending, that's one option, or, and again I quote, debt payment and federal spending should be handled separately, and again, let me just point out that that is the way it normally is. You have the debt limit, which is raised as a matter of course. Traditionally, the debt is determined by the budget process. So when you ask it that way, the results are really lopsided. Um, 78% say they should be... Oh, sorry. Uh, hold on. I'm wrong here. 72% say they should be handled separately which is the democratic position. I'm sorry again. I'm sorry. I got this wrong. 58% say they should be handled separately, which is the democratic position. And just 26% say they should only raise the limit if Biden agrees to spending cuts. And that is the Republican position. But, 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 when asked who they would blame more if we do default, uh, 39% said they'd blame Republicans more and 36% said they'd blame Biden more. <laughs> what do you make of that? Well, well, a couple things. One is that most people don't know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, they got lives. They got comp- everybody's got problems. Everybody has concerns. They have jobs. They have kids. They have elders to take care of. They have school to go to. You know, who is going to stop and focus on those questions and 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 then answer them accurately? I, I have no idea who would do that. The, the, that that second this list of que- the last bit of questions you asked, I even lost focus on those questions. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I mean, I think what it boils. So, so those questions themselves lend a kind of seriousness to what the Republicans are doing that they are themselves not doing. They are not serious. You know, when they say, hey, we want you to get, hey, Mr. President, we want you to give up your signature legislative package called the Inflation Reduction Act in exchange for us lifting the debt ceiling. That's not a serious position to take. Yes. You don't you don't ask the other guy to say, I'm going to shoot my go ahead and shoot yourself in the foot and then we'll give you what you want. But that's not if you if it was explained that way to people, I think most normal people would be like, well, of course, the president's not going to agree to that. Yes. You know, but you get you get all this like, you know, you get it. Numbers are just like there are some people who are geniuses at numbers. They were born that way. I am not one of those people. And I would I would guess at least at least half of the population <laughs> sees numbers and their eyes glaze right over right away, and so polling about debt ceilings and so on is you're going to get bonkers responses unless the language is really concrete like that NBC poll about um, when you just described where seventy percent were like no no you need to raise the debt ceiling because when they mentioned that the that the consequence would be a default. Yeah, you have to, you have to, if you, you mention that, it's very clear that you get yeah, exactly. huge majority. Just say By the way, going to be. Yeah. 40% of Republicans in that poll said it should be raised when the prospect of default, if it isn't raised, was mentioned in the poll question. So it's 40% right. of Republicans. And that's, you know, let's, let's really understand this. Uh, John, I'm going to ask, I'm going to poll you right now. Here's a poll question. Sure. So... If it's clear that these 
responses show that people have no fucking clue what the debt limit is and they think that it limits the debt because it doesn't do that right. right it just it just provides the ability to pay the debts that we've already accrued through the budget process so if if it's clear to both of us and to many other observers that people have no fucking idea um would you blame who would you blame more for that the media or democrats and they're <laughs> And their messaging, I I I definitely would blame the the our our press. You know okay. the the you know the thing about the press, and this is this is not a, I don't think this is, this is a problem with a solution. The thing about the press is it has to try to be rational and coherent, right? Our job as press people is to be coherent and and communicate information in a way in, in a way that's understandable in a language that most people can understand, right? Well, if you're talking about Republicans today, these days, you're talking about stuff that is irrational, incoherent, and unserious, right? And so to take that and then translate it in a way to the, the, just to do your job properly, you are lending a, a, a kind of seriousness and reasonableness to it that does not exist in reality, Right. And this is this is Biden's biggest challenge, really, is just to get people to understand how unserious the Republicans are without seeming like he's he's, uh, you know, getting touchy with the press. Um, so and, and then and then there's just, you know, uh, po- politics within the press too. like the, the the there's an incentive to carry water for the Republicans just to see what the Republicans. The, the president's going to say, you know, yeah. and that, that that's, you know, that happens with whoever's in, in the white house, the press will carry democratic water if there's a Republican in the, and so on. Um, and then the, of course there's the, the conflict the, place. Conflict is yeah, conf- yeah. You're aiming for conflict and drama. And conflict so on. drama. Yeah. Right. So um, yeah, I would definitely blame the press. The Democrats get a bad rap, I think, for messaging. Everybody thinks that messaging is some silver bullet. Like if we only just talked right, then you know, that, you know. First of all, Democrats don't don't work that way. Liberals, the liberal mind doesn't work that way. Liberals are like herding cats. Yeah. Conservatives are like herding sheep. You can provide, <laughs> you can provide one message for conservatives, and they all get it. Yep. You know, you provide one message for a bunch of liberals and they all argue about it. Yeah. So, top down messaging. That's a it's a it's a real advantage for uh, the conservative movement. Top down. Really, they take really the talking points and run with them. And they exactly. and then, then you have the power of repetition, which is really key. By the way, the yeah. editorial board's motto is politics in plain English for normal people and the common good. Thank Just you. So listeners know that. Um, OK, so you are correct. It is the media. okay i'm gonna switch gears yet again but um first we're gonna take a quick break um stay tuned we'll be right back with more with john store which came as some surprise I spoke into his eyes I thought you died alone A long, long time ago Uh, moving on you wrote a piece recently arguing that red states aren't becoming quote laboratories for autocracy because they were already that um i would say that you're 100 percent right and that we should also acknowledge that they are becoming more brazen uh, that is republican legislatures if they or republican states that states that have a republican trifecta republicans in states that have a trifecta um they become more brazen as they have embraced minority rule and uh started pursuing a pure base strategy and basically stopped trying to expand their coalitions or win over new voters everything is of course relative 
and they are getting much more aggressive in uh, targeting trans people and reproductive health and suppressing the vote and encouraging gun violence and blah, 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 all the rest. But the thing I wanted to ask you about was your larger point that this authoritarian tendencies we're seeing in red states has to be contained. Can you talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. that? How do you propose doing that? Right. So I use contain, if for those who are students of Cold War history, you know what the word containment means. It means basically the United States trying to contain the spread of communism, Soviet communism. Um, and um, the I use the word to, to describe containing authoritarian tendencies in the states. Um, the So beginning around 1950, with Brown versus the Board of Education, um, probably some other Supreme Court acts, uh, sorry, Supreme Court rulings around there. That, that was the beginning of the federal government starting to contain the authoritarian tendencies of, of the states, especially the southern, the ex-slaver states, as I put it. As I put it. Right. And um, then you have, you know, the Civil Rights Act um, and um, the Voting Rights Act and then the various rights movements and other in Roe and so on and so forth. These are at, these are um, actions taken by the federal government, whether it's the courts or the Congress, to um, contain what is a, what I think is a native-born autocracy uh, within, especially the ex-slavery states. Well, with so that that so that you know with that regime, you could say was in effect, and in certain more or less strong and less strong degrees up until the Dobbs decision, which was the overturning of Roe. Um, this is all my opinion, by the way. Uh, I see in that Dobbs decision a, a reversal of um, the federal government's pattern of containing authoritarian tendencies in the states. So now you see the states just, they're, they're uh, it's like, they're gangbusters now. They're like, we, we, we got this. We're going back to the segregationist times. Um, it won't be exactly that way. It'll, it'll be some variety of um, segregationist times. But but the, the goal is to restoring what I call the natural order of things in which white Christian men are on top and everybody else is on the bottom. Right. That's it. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I would say... I would say um, it's so Roe is the most recent blow, but let's also yeah. not overlook Shelby County. So that's the case yeah. that the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. Um, yeah. Heller, I think, is a, another one that I would point to. That's um, the one that established out of Antonin Scalia's ass the individual right to bear arms, uh, yeah. which had never been contemplated before. And um, by the way, um, it looks like the Supreme Court may soon uh, strike down all laws limiting uh, assault weapons, high-capacity magazines, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Yeah, I am... you, also, you also have, sorry, you also have the, religion, the free exercise of religion rulings yes. that, that are um, compelling Hobby states. Lobby to and others. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. We're in a bad place with the courts. This is the bad <laughs> place. All right. I'm going to, again... Uh, shift gears. And um, let's reach into our pockets. Remember I told you to put Biden's age in your pocket because I was going to come back to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, So it has become popular among some commentators, especially but not only younger ones, to kind of lament the Democratic Party's aging leadership. You wrote two pieces recently about that mm-hmm. in the context of questions about Joe Biden's age and then also calls for Diane Feinstein the 89-year-old senator from California to step down. Um, I will say now, I had some problems with the latter piece that I want to hash out with you, but let's talk first about Biden. Um, Last week, you wrote for the editorial board, uh, you wrote a piece titled When Republican Candidates Talk About How Old Biden Is, Joe Biden Is. They're not talking about how old he is. What are they talking about? Talking about Kamala Harris. That's where they're talking about. Um, They don't really care how old he is with with their... doing is raising levels of fear among those who fear this kind of thing, uh, that he will die in office and pass the presidency over to a biracial woman. And then then God forbid that for that, that to happen. Um, And the, 
the the thing about I, the whole like oh gee I wish we could have different candidates well we don't we have yeah. this president right you know I like to write when I write about things I write about things that are real not about things that are ideal and uh, instead of lamenting this choice bet- which will will be the choice between Biden and Trump we should celebrate it we should say hey this is a great easy choice you know done we should just just take it and run with it. The only bad thing for me is if he dies before getting reelected. That would be bad. That would be really bad. Um, all kinds of unpredictable things would. I can't. Yeah. You can't predict what that would happen. But if he dies after office, that's that's different. You know, I um, I really, I want to endorse this view that there has to be a certain amount of acceptance because I personally would like to see somebody else as the nominee. Um, hmm. I think Biden has done a very good job, but I do acknowledge his weaknesses in terms of public opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know what? It's like, let's not waste our time and energy. There's a certain tendency, especially on the left, to really like obsess over these things. And, you know, just acknowledge that the power of incumbency, when you have a successful president who serves a first term and hasn't been plagued by scandal, real scandals, they're going to get the nomination. That's just the yeah. way it is, right? So what do you, you know, you can beat your head against the wall, um, but that, that's how it works. And yeah. regular listeners know that I was in no way a Joe Biden fan, but that I've been impressed by how he and his team have managed the, the first two years of his presidency. And my sense is that he does appear to be physically frail in a way that like Donald Trump, who is only a few years younger, does not. But he does seem, as we said, to be quick on his feet, uh, sharp of mind, as that clip demonstrated. And, you know, we didn't elect him to, like, win a medal in pole vaulting. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. okay, he's a little unsteady on his feet. Um, yeah. And I'd yeah. also just note that we focus so much on the president when it's a very big team. Uh, and while there are plenty of specific criticisms to make, this team has, has been pretty good on the whole. Yeah, I mean, they're holding it. Age, no president acts alone, right? If he was just in the White House all by himself, this empty White House, then we would be worried. I think we'd be very worried. Like worrying about your dad alone at his house. You know, no, he's not. You know, he's got, there's hundreds of people around him. Um, And honestly, as long as he can sign his name and give a speech, I think we're okay. Um, you know, we don't elect a president in this country. We elect a president and we elect uh, a party to choose, I think, close to 3,000 political positions in the right. executive office of the White House. Right. And that matters. And you get people on the Republican side, like Stephen Miller, right? Like that's who comes in, these crazy wing nuts. Um, and on the Democratic side, you have people who. Even if I disagree with them, they take governing seriously on the yeah. whole. There are exceptions. Yeah. So, um, so okay, age is a state of mind. Biden is of sound, sound mind. That kind of does provide a little bit of a segue into the piece on Feinstein that I, I took issues with. And the only reason I want to hash this out is that I think there that it, it illustrates some common dynamics in political analysis that I, I have. I've long had issues with it, so mm-hmm. I have some problems with this one. Um, anyway, let's let's lay it out. You argued that calls for Feinstein's resignation were misguided. Um, do you want to uh, make that case? Yeah, sure. I mean, the 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 whole idea is that um, that her being out for so long was going to wreck um, the president's um, filling in seat in the seats in the federal judiciary. And the, the fact is, in, by January, they, they had, he, he had, no, sorry, not January, by December, according to the Associated Press, Biden had more presidents in, sorry, Biden had more federal judges installed uh, at that point in his presidency than both of his predecessors. Yes. Um, and, and not only that, but they were more diverse. Um, much more diverse. Much more yeah. diverse, right. Yeah. So there's been a delay. I mean, there's no... There's no no doubt about that. And the fact that she wasn't, has not been in Washington for what, I don't know, three months now um, to, to do, to vote has uh, 
gummed things up a bit. But now she's back, apparently. The, the LA Times reported that she's back this, this past this week. She's, and, she, she, issued, she cast her first vote yesterday. And there you go. Right. So now we're back. Um, the, 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 <laughs> there, the, my, my other part of my thesis is that there are some progressives um, or who they, anyway, they call themselves progressives who um, are very good at exploiting um, a kind of anger on the base. Feinstein is a, is an easy target. You know, she's this, you know, she's really a product of like two generations ago, <laughs> you know, and she's, you know, she's the one who hugged uh, one of the justices. I forget who it was. And, and, uh, seemed uh, amicable when uh, the base of the Democratic Democratic Party was livid, you know. Um, so she's an easy target and, uh, you know, she, but she, I didn't think she needed to resign. I think she just needed to get back to Washington and start voting again. All right. So I have a small criticism and a big criticism. So the small criticism is that your piece does not in any way acknowledge that she has faced significant, significant cognitive decline. And I think that's a big reason that people are calling for her to step down. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't even say this is like the worst kept secret in DC because it isn't even a secret. Mm -hmm. Um, And she constantly gets exposed, like not knowing where she is and what's going on around her. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, you can have staff, you know, kind of prop her up and, but at some point, um, there's an opportunity cost because senators have a greater role than just casting votes, according to what staffers recommend. And, um, you know, we only have 50. It's uh, 51 senators. It's a mismatched. You know, the Republicans have a structural advantage in terms of small states getting the same representative representation in the Senate is big states and you're not getting a dynamic Senator because she is out of it. So unlike Biden, who is still there uh, mentally, she is clearly not. She's struggling with that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's my small criticism. You don't mention that in the piece, Mm -hmm. but my larger issue was with your framing of this as um, progressives like exercising because power, because they can. Mm -hmm. And specifically uh, or, or one of the one of the the points that just jumped out at me is that you wrote, um, and I quote: "People possessing real power don't need reasons to use it. What they need is excuses." Ro Khanna, Dean Phillips, and other progressive Democrats aren't saints; they're politicians too. And Ro Khanna and Dean Phillips are the first two. Uh, Democratic representatives to come out and call for Feinstein's resignation. There have been others, including progressives like AOC. But um, are you familiar with Dean Phillips of Minnesota? Not other than this 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 thing. Interesting. So Dean Phillips, uh, he has a he gets a C score from Progressive Punch. That's the mm. one of the ratings. You know, one of the the ranking rankings of, of ideology, but mm-hmm. a more, a, a more objective one is DW nominate scores. DW mm-hmm. nominate is something that political scientists use to place lawmakers on the spectrum within Congress. So it's not necessarily like what they believe, but what their voting record is relative to other members of Congress. Right. Mm-hmm. And vote view, which uses DW nominate scores. I'm sorry to be all nerdy about this. Mm-hmm. Um, Dean Phillips is more conservative than 84% of Democrats mm-hmm. in the U.S. House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. He is in no way a progressive. Right. So, you know, John, why did you assume he's a progressive? Uh, because he was taking the progressive line. I mean, the, but it, why why is that a progressive line? I mean, if the if the issues with Feinstein are both what you say, mm-hmm. you know, questions about moving judges along, mm-hmm. uh, all all Democrat, pract- most Democrats, regardless of their ideological perspective, mm-hmm. want to see d- judges approved, want to rebalance the judiciary after Trump. Um, mm-hmm. If it's more what I'm saying that she has experienced significant 
cognitive decline and is just not home anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a very common instinct to hone in on intra-party conflict between progressives and mainstream or centrist Democrats. And I think it's often contrived. And I think this is an example of that. I don't see anything about this that is about progressives per se. And here we have a very concrete example. Dean Phillips of Minnesota. You didn't Google him up to see what his ideological perspective was, but you wrote the piece saying that this is progressives exercising power because they can. Yeah, that just seemed to be the, the case to me at the time. And, and it, like I said, Feinstein's been a, uh, been a target of this kind of rhetoric before. And it seems to me that usually the rhetoric comes from the same people. Phillips is a new name to me in this regard. You're correct. All right. Well, maybe something to keep in mind. Sure. <laughs> John Stork, I believe we are out of time. And I, thank you for letting me beat you about it a little bit at the end. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Folks, read John all the time at the editorialboard.com. Very much worth your while. Thanks, Josh. I would also th- like to thank David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternate and Raw Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on various social media at this point. Mastodon. Uh, I'm trying Spoutable. Mm, I don't know. It's okay. I'm on Post. I'm on whatever. Counter Social. If anybody has a blue sky invite to spare, you know, reach out to me. <laughs> you can get uh, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I would like to thank all of you fine folks for tuning in. Have a terrific week. That street where Lou Rawls said he was from. Walgreens eating them turkey dinners and them dressing. Y'all remember that? Them red beans and rice. Them red beans and rice and oxtail. Good God Almighty, Lord. I just want to get back to them again. Can everybody say mighty, mighty? I hear y'all children now.